0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're going to be joined by Bill Sweet, who, in addition to being a former captain, In the U.S. Army and a tank commander, is also the CFO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. We're going to talk a little bit about the estate planning environment and what he's seeing with clients and what you can do in order to get your affairs in order during this downtime. Bill, welcome aboard. Hey, glad to be here. I mentioned before that you were a tank commander in the Army. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. You don't hear much about artillery and wealth management in the same sentence. What was your experience like on that front?
1: Well, I guess you'd be surprised. There is actually a pretty thriving network, especially in New York City. CFA Society has a great veterans roundtable. But yeah, completely almost polar opposite of what I'm doing now in this world where I was deployed in far-reaching places across the country and globe and now in the greatest city in, in New York here. But yeah, that's how I grew up. My dad was an artillery officer. You mentioned that in the Army when I was born in the 70s. And so that was just a way of life. And it was something that I wanted to do very early on. There's also a really big financial reason. Bluntly, it was an RTC scholarship that led me to the army to pay my way through RPI, through Rensselaer, to a computer engineering degree. My dad was a saver, sort of a millionaire next door type. But in the 90s, early 90s, well, wasn't a lot of dollars laying around. So he kind of said, look, here's what I've got for college. And after that, you're on your own. And so I was able to patch it together with an RTC scholarship. But a great way to start a career, I sort of talk about military services as a master's degree in work ethic because the latest you'll get an army officer to a meeting is five minutes early. Built in core values, just folks, if you're looking to hire somebody from the military in your organization, it's a great place to look for some people of loyalty that believe in duty and have respect. It's really about getting stuff done when literally lives are on the line. So it's a great way to sort of start as a young man in my early 20s.
0: That's really cool. I'm going to put in the show notes a couple of links to some resources for people who are looking to maybe hire veterans or keep an eye out for different talent that comes out of that service. I think it's an untapped and interesting spot for a lot of folks, whether you're a VC and starting things up and you need someone to execute, which is where I think military background was really a cool upbringing, or otherwise, just as you said, someone who adheres to work ethic and duty and core values. I think that's a really interesting spot. Yeah. As a 22-year-old
1: platoon leader, I was in charge of 16 people, management just right off the gate, $16 million of government equipment in the form of four M1 Abrams tanks, and was deployed in a combat zone where those guys looked at me and my platoon sergeant to basically get them through combat. It's pretty heavy. It happens very early. You don't have to wait to get that level of experience. And the reason the Army does it, and military, Marine Corps, elsewhere, is so by the time you're 40, by the time you're 50, you've had all that experience under your belt. Like I said, it's a great way to hire somebody that can get stuff done in exactly the way you describe.
0: Well, and you get trial by fire. I mean, that's actual experience. Literally. <laughs> exactly. You've got bullets and things flying around and you get a real MBA or PhD in life when you've got to get multi-million dollar machinery through and execute on some other person's vision very often. Exactly. Cool. Well, back to the other warfare, which is how do you help your clients through not only a pandemic, but also just craziness in the markets, volatility, extremely low interest rates. Before we head off into the estate planning world, which is where I think you and I both know a little bit more on the topic than maybe trying to guess where things are going to go from an investment perspective, what are your clients seeing at the moment? What are they worried about? Maybe a better way to put it is what are the couple of questions that you hear the most often? What I've been
1: sort of surprised about here in this environment, it's July 23rd as we're recording this. And I think that that's actually the time that these conversations should start. More accurately, they're ongoing. It's not like you wait until November to sort of look at the calendar turning over, start to look at your estate. I think the role that a good financial planner that certainly that you play in your organization and we play in ours is to really sort of see these issues, prioritize them, and just iteratively chop those things down over time. I want to quote you something that a great author, a great thinker of our time wrote is someone who's asking on Twitter about advisors who have their EA. It's an enrolled agent designation with the IRS and has it been beneficial? And the answer was I think that could surpass the CFP in terms of importance, because behavioral coaching is one thing, but individual tax advice is where the actual alpha is in my opinion. Do you have any idea who said that, those words? I don't know. It would be something that I would be proud to have said if it was me. <laughs> it was, in fact. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and I could not agree more. I mean, that just the synergy, the planets gotten in alignment. Because I agree. I think that if you're doing good work for clients, income tax is something that you kind of built and layered in. It's never the most important thing. I think that you and I know that. Estate planning is not the most important thing until it is all of a sudden in a hurry. So it is an iterative process and something gets built, hopefully, from the ground up. But yeah, I don't think there's any bright flashing light that comes on. But I would agree with your thesis that the environment today, the combination of estate exemptions at the federal level, certainly, and as states have sort of slowly harmonized with that, or at least modified them. I mean, New Jersey was this outlier, this very small exemption of states that did impose an estate or an inheritance tax. And they revised it a couple of years ago, which is great. I think in partly in response to TCGA. But regardless, it's a very interesting environment. And then interest rates too. It's fascinating. That to me on the investment side is the thing that I most am concerned about is what the future of fixed income returns looks like, especially if we do actually see some inflation at some point, come back to the environment. But what that provides you on the estate side is some generational opportunities with AFRs or And the ones and twos, it's insane compared to where they were five years ago, 10 years ago. This is a great time. It's a great time to be having these conversations in July, I think is the right time to be looking at any income tax things because the calendar turns over here in just five short months.
0: No question about it. I'm going to sort of rehash a little bit of what you unveiled for us as far as attributes that are interesting. Again, low interest rates, high exemptions from gift and estate tax the concept that there is sometimes harmony or disharmony between state estate tax regimes and federal income tax regimes, which is a big deal in New York, as I tell people. And also, I think the concept that states and municipalities are going to be starved for revenue. And as we flip the page going into 2021, I tell people who are tri-state area residents in California and Illinois that there is going to be a shortfall, and taxes are going to have to come up, and services are going to have to go down, and that's got to come from somewhere. And you've just got this interesting window right now where there is a little bit of certainty into what you can take advantage of, and that certainty may go away very quickly, and as quickly as November, and with what I would describe as probably a binary outcome as far as the elections concerned. I think the other part too, another feature that is obvious to many but sometimes not so obvious to those who are worried about their businesses if they have their own family business or their own practice. The value of those practices, I would argue, is probably artificially low in many respects right now. And so there's additional leverage that people can use in terms of estate planning to getting things to the next generation or sort of thinking about their philanthropic concepts It's an interesting time right now to be thinking about that. It's a little bit dangerous. I know that some people that I've talked to are paralyzed and that they don't know whether they can sort of spend the way they would like to in the next five years. I'm sure as you do projections for people from a financial planning perspective, you're saying, look, if you've got a spend rate of X and you've seen a 30% drawdown and it's popped back up, but can you maintain that for the long haul, especially in retirement when those assets aren't going to be growing as much or you're going to be spending them down that's a consideration that we have to take into account too for people is it may be the best environment ever but sometimes it's tough to take advantage of that if you're worried about the short term in terms of cash flow absolutely and cannot
1: overemphasize the sort of struggle that a lot of businesses are having one client comes to mind in our sphere travel and events business and they're not expecting any revenue until mid 2021 right now just because that's where they are and that obviously affects them that affects their employees affects that entire industry and there are a lot of people out there that are hurting so it is a strange time just big picture but i think it is the role of the financial planner the role of the wealth manager the role of the state planning attorney frankly to sort of look at the landscape as it exists and figure out how can i give advice at fiduciary level to this client to help them. Take advantage of it, especially if, as you say, the business has taken a hit in evaluation, if they've received a hit in revenue or whatever factor might be in play.
0: You work for a, I'd say, a really well-regarded RIA and you you touch a lot of different portions of people's financial lives. Maybe talk a little bit about how you intersect with other advisors, whether lawyers, accountants, etc. And what's making me think about this is we've just sort of laid out why it's interesting, estate planning. Other financial planning, income tax planning, why it's really key to get this going now. One of my thoughts is that certainly once Labor Day hits, but especially once October hits, there is going to be a huge crush of interest in quote unquote getting stuff done. And I think the advisors, certainly the accountants, very much so the lawyers, and even more so the financial institutions are going to be crushed in a way that, in my opinion, that I will have not seen since 2012, which was the last big crush that I can remember. And what can you do to, both for the financial professionals that have to interact with the advisors, and then in talking to clients, What can we do to kind of get people to focus on this stuff right now? I think sort of July and August when people are sort of bedded in and trying to figure out what's going to happen. I know many people are worried about schools and what are they going to do in the fall and so on. Yeah, there's some real life stuff going on. Yeah, this is not top of mind, but what are you telling people to sort of focus on this opportunity?
1: It's not top of mind, but again, I think we have a role to play in our clients' lives and anybody in this profession. Like, it's our job to bring these matters to people's attention. And then we cannot always execute everything. Obviously, a client needs to sign the documents and engage with the attorneys, et cetera. But I would totally agree with your thesis that now's the time. If you think about what just happened last week, July 15th, that was the federal income tax deadline. That's the first time it's been later than April in my memory, beyond a day or two the extension. So your accountants are just sort of getting over that deadline. And just it's human nature, no matter how professional your accounting firm is, your CPA is, they they had a lot of work to do last week. But now there's this lapse between now and September when the corporate extensions are due and then October. When the extensions are due from july really now but typically april so yeah now's the time so again i think the role that a good wealth manager does is for us anyway where we don't have all these services in house we have clients in 38 states i believe 35 states somewhere in that neighborhood and i cannot pretend to be an expert in the california example income tax code so we do work with a lot of outside accountants cpas attorneys typically our clients are bringing those into the relationship and it's my job as the person who thinks about income tax to really get ahead of that side and so just a couple of anecdotal examples like one client they're going to be turning 72 here in about four years and the conversation that we just had last week was about Roth IRA conversions. One of the concepts I like to bring up this time of year is filling up lower tax brackets and again back to your point from before which I think is a really good one if you're running a business or if you're receiving investment income this is a really interesting year if you have some carry forward losses or something else of that nature to potentially use that asset either a carry forward loss maybe some losses that were realized in march and april we have a system that does that algorithmically or a business side i think that this is an interesting time that we could have this sort of gap or this lower income That does tie into not just income, but obviously estate tax planning too. But I think the primary thing to do as a wealth manager, if you're in that role, is just to get the troops together, get the rodeo together, put a date on the calendar for next week. I want to take a look at this. I want to discuss this and then start prioritizing and delegating. Because absent that, I think you're right. I think this is an environment, and especially with some real world stuff going on with people's lives, where that might not be on the top of the client's radar but it's your role as a professional to bring that up and to begin moving
0: that direction. So, one of the things that I deal with on a, I'd almost say, an hourly basis is the concept of sort of jurisdictional arbitrage. I work with a trust company that's based in Tennessee. There's no state income tax. That's my background going back in time. And at the larger estate tax level, there's lots of different things you can do to save on different state taxes. Harkening back a little bit, and this Isn't necessarily anything for the super rich, but I think a lot of people are starting to think about the work from home concept. And am I, as someone who was sort of stuck in Westchester County or Fairfield or somewhere else, do I really want to be paying New York City taxes? (laughs) Or do I want to be. No. No, no one does. It's an extra 4 plus percent and probably going up. And I'm sure people are starting to think about the concept of arranging their affairs in such a way that they can either take advantage of different opportunities or otherwise try to avoid onerous concepts. Are you starting to hear that from your client base? To me, it seems like it's a constant, but especially when people retire, but I predict that we're gonna see a lot more interest in that for people who are in the middle of their careers right now and are starting to arrange their affairs to work from home, And my cautionary tale to most people, especially in New York, is that they will find a way to try to dig their claws into you. Oh,
1: sure. California more than anyone else.
0: Oh, big time. And it's my other thesis that you've got time right now to, I wouldn't say arrange your affairs for 2020, but if you're thinking longer term thoughts, this might be the time to arrange your affairs for 2021.
1: I totally agree. And there's a draft email in my box. I just pulled it up from a client who asked a question along these lines last night. So yes, (laughs) I think smart people are thinking about this. In the age of COVID here in these last four months, what does it mean to have an office in New York City versus, let's say, Nevada or Tennessee was the example that you used. And especially if you are mobile, if you have the ability to pick up roots, just to sort of lay it out, top marginal tax rate. So this is a client expecting to sell a business at some point in the next five to six years, expecting to receive somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 to $20 million. So obviously it has been very successful. A lot of hard work went into that building that team. But regardless, they're expecting that to happen. They're living in San Francisco. Top marginal income tax rate in the state of California, above $2 million for a married filing, joint couple, 13.3%. In New York City, the gentleman has a part-time residents in New York, 12.7%. One of the interesting things that you shared and brought to my attention about a month ago was that Supreme Court case about how they basically allowed New York to pursue an income tax application in part due to a part-time residency. So can you imagine having to deal with both California and New York at 12 to 13% income tax on a big windfall event? So given that this is something that can probably will happen four to five years from now. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty. The client threw out another state that he owns a property in Idaho. Well, the marginal tax rate there is 7%. So without even getting into Tennessee, Alaska, which pays you to be a resident, by the way, Florida, Texas, and a handful of other states, and we're talking about potentially 2.6 million versus 1.4 million to Idaho versus zero on a hypothetical $20 million windfall. So Obviously, a lot depends on how that's structured. There's a lot that can happen. The note that I'm sending him is, and it's outside of my area of expertise. So, like, I'm not an attorney and I can't even pretend to be one, but it's how do you establish domicile? And you know what that word means. But I think the average American really doesn't. Most people think if you just change your voter registration, change my license, I'm good to go. I'm a resident of Florida. Not really. A lot depends on the facts and circumstances. And very confusingly, back to that New York State Supreme Court case. Each state has their own rules as far as what that means, and it's very much subject to interpretation in front of a judge. So I think that's a great thing to think about, especially for folks that are mobile that have that ability, but it's a lot more complex than it might seem. And you and I are both aware of tax court cases of California, I think in particular comes to mind of them clawing back after somebody moves, sort of claiming that the business was built in California, looking at credit card statements where somebody's buying their coffee, I mean, that level of surveillance. In the age of COVID, I hate to bring this sort of stuff up, but in the age of contact tracing, I think information data like that is only kind of more and more available. So if you're not actually willing to move, pick up the books, move the kids, enroll in a new school, and the whole shebang, I would tread very lightly in this arena.
0: Great point. And I think that the I tell people the cocktail party version of, oh, I'm picking up my stakes and moving to Florida, it is a <laughs> lot more complicated than that. There is sure a real is. cottage industry, and I tell people that if you want to avoid New York in particular you have to almost affirmatively reject New York. And by that, I mean, if you want your fact pattern to be good, you have to sell everything. You have to leave your church. You have to get rid of your clubs. You have to sell your property. Sell your property in addition to registering your car and re-registering to vote in Florida or something like that. There is a real art and science to all of this. And without getting too into the weeds on it, there is a concept of domicile and there's a concept of residence in New York and you can pass one test and fail the other. And that draws you back in like Al Pacino in Godfather (laughs) three. It's not something you want. And it's something that you really, in my mind, if you've got a year of transition, that is the year to really bed in those types of life changes so that you can have a clean slate going into the next year when I would say you can be pretty assured you're going to get audited if you're California or New York or Illinois or places that are starved for revenue. Exactly. I was going to circle back
1: to your operating thesis from before, which is states are going to be hurting here for the foreseeable future, two, three years. And it's not just the hole that they've dug, but it's the ongoing pressure. My wife's a public school teacher and they're talking, they need to shell out one to $2 million in protective equipment to sort of make sure that the kids and students coming back to school are going to be able to be safe. No idea where that money's coming from. No clue. Not even a scratch on the surface yet, because they're not even sure if they're going to be open here in two months, which is just wild that we're still having these conversations today, unfortunately.
0: Just to circle back a little bit to the interest rate discussion, the rates are at generational lows. The AFR, the applicable federal rate, is in the ones or twos. I think it might even be- lower 1.12. Than- I looked it up while we were chatting. Unbelievable. One of the easiest and I would say least used tools for many people is the concept of the intra family loan. And are you seeing any use of that in your client base? To me, that is something that it's fairly easy to paper, it's very powerful, it can achieve a lot of different goals without sort of subjecting a family to a lot of complication. What are you seeing in your client base on that area? One other comment, too, I mean, we're talking about a lot of tools that maybe the ultra-wealthy use, and for some people, they say, well, this doesn't apply to me, I don't have this sort of net worth to really have that make sense. The Intrafamily Loan to me is interesting because you can take advantage of some of these tools, and it's a great way to do something for the next generation or to other people that you're interested in helping out without necessarily spoiling kids or creating issues and creating some accountability. Maybe some thoughts on that. It's a really complex topic and something I wouldn't engage in as a hobby
1: because there are some landmines, as you know, that you can trip there. But I would totally agree that the opportunity set is here. So just a little bit of historical context just to set the table, August 2010 AFR. So this is the applicable federal rate. It's basically the minimum interest rate that the IRS will deem an arm's length-ish transaction to occur. If you're below this interest rate, the IRS can come in and say, look, this is actually a gift. And so to your point about family transfers or family loans, there's a very specific set of circumstances that differentiates a gift versus a loan. And to avoid gift tax consequences and other sort of conditions, it's best to use this function. I think it's too like a long term proposition. So the clients that I'm thinking of that have used this, they're usually thinking their children are young. There's a trust structure set up. One generation is allowing the loan to occur from one party to the next. And what that does is it just allows for that generational wealth transfer to happen and potentially shield future estate taxes. That's generally the concept that we've deployed it in. But, yeah, AFR at 3.9 percent in August of 2010, in August of 2017, even recently 2.6. So to see that get cut in half here. In about two years it is completely i don't know if it's unprecedented actually because interest rates have been dropping as you know since 1980 sort of stepped down so we'll see i'd be shocked if they go very much lower but it's a complicated topic but i think it's an interesting one and to your point i mean we've had the conversation here twice with the client that i'm thinking of of potentially refinancing those things because as we've seen the interest rates sort of tick down in the cost structure and works in such a way that's deductible on one party, but it's an income to the other, that the lower that number is, the easier it is to manage those payments, especially if it's an amortized loan. So a big opportunity there and something, especially if you're concerned about those estate taxes, I think they're much more onerous typically at the state level if your state doesn't impose it, awesome tool to mitigate the impact of that in the future.
0: And again, just to reiterate A lot of people who are concerned about giving money away to the next generation and creating trust fund kids and problem children and things like that, the idea of having a loan that the kids are responsible for, even with a low interest rate like that, I think can set the table well for future good habits. Agree. And so you're killing two birds with one stone, you're taking advantage of potential estate tax savings and other sort of tax mitigation, but you're also creating a good practice for your next generation when you're able to take advantage of those types of skills. So we both have work to do, I'm sure, coming up. You've got a meeting, I think, in an hour or so that you've got to get ready for. But any other closing concepts that you'd like to sort of impart to people or opportunities that you're seeing Certainly, we talked a lot about sort of lower valuations and different volatility spasms that people could take advantage of and interest rates and the high state exemptions and estate tax components. Anything else out there that you're seeing that people should be thinking about? No big sort of topics. I think, again,
1: the the role of a financial planner, wealth manager is an ongoing iterative process. I think that the thing that I've sort of come around to and I've been counseling a lot of our folks on is how important maintenance is. So I think we all have, in some degree, shiny object syndrome where it's very exciting to put together a plan like this or like a Roth area conversion plan, or maybe we're going to figure out how to diversify out of low basis securities in a concentrated position. But the reality is that it's more of a process than it is an event. And so I think that there's this sort of rush and there's this sort of professional satisfaction that comes from presenting a plan and doing a job well done. But the reality is the real work in this industry, in this profession, in this practice is the ongoing relationship maintenance. Your book very eloquently, I think, speaks about this. You mentioned the real concern, I think, about generational wealth transfer is the potential muting of productiveness or aspirational qualities. And those factors, they're not going to show up on a form 1040. If you raise a child that can go out and form their own business. That's not something that's going to pop up on your Form 1041. You'll carry it to your grave and be proud about it. But for me, anyway, it's it's more about the ongoing maintenance of these things. But I think that if there's one sort of sin that I think we all have, it's that we're hungry. We're hungry for more. Our firm has been very blessed and we're very fortunate to have experienced growth even here in this crisis. But if we're not doing a good job, and not even great, a fantastic job. For the folks that have been with us for two to three to five years and continuing to improve and just get their stuff better and better, we're not doing a good service by our clients and we're taking our eye off the ball of what really matters. And that's come up not a lot recently, but it's been certainly the focus of my thought process here is to go back and revisit these things because they're living, breathing documents. A lot of the speculation here that we've discussed for this podcast has been about changes, about changes to federal rates. We're seeing this potential political situation change. What happens if really for the first time since 2011, I think, we see this decrease in the federal exemption on the estate side? We're thinking about all this stuff, and if your plan isn't nimble enough or at least can react to those things as they occur over time, I don't think that we're doing a good service by our clients. That's probably the number one thing is maintenance is much more important than the beginning of a relationship.
0: It's a, such an important point, and thank you for bringing it up. I think the idea that we go through all the energy and imaginations to get a plan in place, and then you're like, well, you set it and forget it. That is a perilous trap, and It ignores the fact that life intervenes. You have a COVID situation that has completely upended lots of things and people get married, have kids, people die, people sell businesses, people get hired, people get fired, people have all sorts of things intervene that can change the dynamics of a plan very quickly. I think it's a great point that a good way to think about it is not just sort of getting my estate plan done, but it's putting in place a structure That's both stable enough to withstand various issues, but flexible enough to take advantage of opportunities or deal with problems as they pop up. I think that change in mindset is an extremely good point, and thank you for bringing that up. Something that sometimes we forget as advisors, you start nerding out and taking advantage (laughs) of tools, and we solve this problem and on to the next thing.
1: It's very human. And again, from your book, you wrote about this, that the skills and the talent and sometimes luck, a lot of times luck, that goes into forming and founding a business that builds wealth, the skills and the talent and the expertise that's necessary for maintaining that is a very different skill set. And it's not to say it can't be learned, but I think stereotypically people think if they've done something once they can do any well in the upper echelon of success, we're talking about usually very, very successful people that we're working with and fortunate to work with, frankly, that We have something to bring to the table. And I think the the diligence part of it, the military stuff you mentioned at the onset, just that cycle of you got to wake up every morning and do your PT because if you don't and you start atrophying, if you apply that in some way conceptually to the financial planning, wealth management, estate planning process, you're doing a better service to your client than the best wealth manager out there. Process over skill.
0: And just one final point. I think it goes to the concept of selecting good advisors who have that sort of ongoing maintenance component. And people ask me, who's a good lawyer to talk to or an accountant or financial advisor? I usually someone who gives three different people in each of those roles for people to interview and have a nice fit. But many times, I think the thing that really surfaces in terms of quality are the people who are on top of things and who are, as you said, maintaining a long-term relationship success in many times is playing long-term games with long-term people and employing patience and sort of I would agree a longer arc to planning as opposed to the latest sort of glitzy transaction or tactic but a really good point bill this was terrific thank you very much Great. for coming on and awesome stay safe and yeah you too Continued success. Look forward to catching up again in New York when we're I'm allowed to. i <laughs> to get back to
1: the office. Yeah. How about you? I can't wait, man. It's been a while.
0: I'm sort of surfing between office and working from home. I do well when I have a place to go, so yeah, I'm rolling out of bed and going two feet to my desk at my apartment. It <laughs> has some benefits, but it also, the lines blur and that's probably not too good for me. <laughs> we will
1: beat this thing. There's no doubt about it. In my mind, we've overcome a lot here as a nation, as a people, but I think here four months in, I'm looking forward to being on the other side today. Terrific. I hope we get there soon. Good. Bill, Hallelujah. Take care. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.